Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. Oh, what a way to start. The very fine voice of Harry Belafonte, singer, actor and activist who died this week. A true cultural and political icon and a hell of a mover. Now, it is not easy being famous. You're ambling along aisle seven and then... I went into a supermarket and a fella comes up to me and says, wait now... Who is it that you are? You know, I get these questions sometimes and I turn bright red. And I uh, suddenly became interested in the gluten-free section, you know, where the bread stays on the shelf for six months. And uh, so he's, he's, he's still looking at me. He's refusing to let me go down the aisle. And he's sort of, he's looking back at me and he says, you, you are Nevin Maguire. And I went, well, you know, I could be, I suppose. Now, this fella, he's fairly thick glasses and he's one of those people who kind of leans back to look at you, you know, like a good tailor might. And uh, then he said, I don't mind if you are. And so he went off home convinced and delighted himself that he just met Nevin Maguire. Now, to add to the strangeness of this situation, I was literally shopping for a recipe by Nevin Maguire. So I had this moment where, is, is he reading my mind? And um, surrounded in a duns by gigantic photographs of the real Nevin Maguire. Anyway, he was very happy with himself. Uh, I made my Sri Lankan curry. So, hello to a fella who's gone around saying, yep, met Nevin Maguire. Very weird fella, I'm sure he's saying. Shops in the gluten-free section. And then, another encounter, this time at the Baked Beans. I remember being in Super Value and pushing my trolley and uh, this, woman, this woman kind of peering around a pile of cans going, it must be great not being bothered. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, it was. It was a minute ago. Oh, the lovely Graham Norton who spoke to Brendan last weekend. And to use a phrase beloved of the rich and famous, he divides his time between London and Pantry. I couldn't wait to get out of there. And, and you know, when I was leaving in the 80s, if somebody had said, you know, that I would willingly come back and spend time there, <laughs> I would rather nuts. Um, and I don't know what, I think partly it's to do with having kind of a routine. So, you know, like me walking around Bantry now is no big deal because, you know, I go there every summer and people see me around. The other thing I like is I know lots of the other people walking around Bantry. You know, whereas in London, if you're walking around and people go, oh, Graham Norton, that's kind of freakish because, well, I don't know who that is. Mm. But in Bantry, my job is slightly more exotic, but equally, you know, they know me. I, I know them. I know, oh, that's the woman who works in Super Value or that's the guy in the butchers or that's the guy who fixes things, you know, all of that. Yeah. And I, I suppose I, I, kind of, I like that. It's great to have you home. Now, Graham is on to chat to Brendan about his book Forever Home out now in paperback, which features this couple. You have um, a, a gay married couple in the book, actually. And it's kind of interesting because... They're kind of an unhappy gay married couple who possibly shouldn't have got married and maybe only got married because gay marriage suddenly became an option. And I was thinking, is this not a bit off message slightly? 
Well, I thought it was, I liked putting that in because I like, I like that idea in Ireland that like there's so many gay couples, it was almost like a shotgun wedding uh, thing going on yes. where people are like, oh God, now you voted for it. I suppose we'll have to do it. You know, all your friends have been campaigning, going from house to house. You kind of go, thanks for that. <laughs> now I'll have to get married. So uh, I, I quite liked that idea and I liked writing them. They made me laugh, that couple. And we can't go there without getting nosy about his own relatively recent marriage. I felt I was kind of going to be, you know, very happy uh, as a single man. I was going to be one of those older single men, you know, a bachelor. That's what I was going to be. I was going to be your Protestant country bachelor. And uh, with, you know, a great group of friends and all of those things. And so cultured and, along, and all that kind of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when Jono came along, that was just a great surprise. It was a lovely surprise, but it wasn't like I. I suppose once it happens, you kind of think, "Oh wow, life is so much better like this." But it wasn't like I was miserable before Jono came along. But it is great that that that's happened. Yeah, and how is married life? It's good so far. <laughs> We're only a year in. <laughs> So are you still in a kind of a honeymoon period and all that? Yeah, are you still very romantic and crazy? I'm going. I'm going. I'm going with yes. <laughs> <laughs> now we know Graham Norton as a gay man on the telly and giving it socks, but he gave this very interesting insight into coming out again, and again, and again. What's weird is, you know, I think what's sweet is, you know, kids talk about coming out and, you know, oh, did they come out, come out. And of course, coming out never stops. You know, even now, you know, in terms of being a well-known homosexual, <laughs> I've got, I, am, I am kind of up there and I'll still be in the back of a cab uh, on the first, you know, nice summer's day. And the cab driver will say something about, you know, girls in summer dresses or, you know, okay. and you kind of, you're sitting in the back of the cab going like, like do I tell him? <laughs> do I, do I now come out to a cab driver or yeah. do I, you know, or do you just smile and nod along? It's, it's all of that. It's, and that, that never stops. And I think a, a lot of kind of young kids don't get that bit of their life. It's like, this isn't going to stop. <laughs> this is something you're going to be doing for the yeah. rest of your life. Wow. Even if you're Graham Norton, because I think people... I know. I mean, I put the work in. (laughs) Now, the book also features a character called Declan, who has dementia. And Brendan asked Graham, had he drawn on his own father's illness for this portrayal? Uh, Bits of it were certainly based on my dad's journey with Parkinson's, but also, you know, at my age, an awful lot of my friends uh, have gone through this with parents. And it's just the most awful thing uh, to see uh, and to experience. It's just because, you know, it's one of those things, it doesn't even do you the favour of killing you. You know, it just steals you bit by bit. And so I, I, I'm i glad you say that. I'm glad you, you thought it was well done because, you know, you don't want to... You don't want to get it wrong. And that, that's why in the book, I never diagnose him. I never actually yeah. say what he's got because you I wanted to be more, more general than that uh, it basically is just you know uh, a degenerative disease that that is taking him we don't need to dwell on this either but did you watch your father kind of taken like that Graham as well slowly recede away from you yeah 
mean, with Parkinson's, it's a much more physical thing, less mental. But mm. I think what happens is, you know, as as you're physically diminished, your world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. That's kind of part of that, to the point where by the end, when somebody goes, it's awful. And, and you know, it was the, the saddest thing that's ever happened in my life was losing my father. But at the same time, you wouldn't wish him yeah. to be alive in that state. You know, if, if he was to be alive, you'd want him to be the dad you knew, not that, that man. And I, I, that was kind of the, the gift the gift of him dying was you got to remember him. He got to live again as kind of, you know, your yeah. well dad, yeah. you know, the dad you knew. And and sort of we don't, I never really remember him as the man in the bed in the nursing home. That that man kind of went when he died. And our memories are all of him when he was well. And then finally, ageing. Graham, Brendan, roundy birthdays. It is slightly shocking that I look in a mirror and go, wow, you're 60. That's that's something. Yeah, I think 50, I kind of was able to bargain with it a bit. Like, well, you know, 50 is still young now and all that. But I don't know, 60 just, it's harder to yeah. bargain that 60 is still a young yeah, man, well, isn't it? For me, I thought 40 was a bit of a shock. 40, I thought it was shocking. <laughs> really? And then 50 just felt like more 40. Why was, was 40 just... such a shock? Just 40 seemed, I don't know. I didn't know who I was at 40, if you know what I mean. I didn't know, yeah. I, I, you know, that kind of thing. You're kind of like, what does a 40-year-old wear? <laughs> what does a 40-year-old eat? Um, I just didn't know. I didn't know how to be 40. Uh, whereas uh, I think I'm, you know, I, I'm more settled now. I think literally I didn't know how to be me when I was 40. Um, so I feel much more settled at 60. Hopefully my 60s will be all right. It's just that thing now that... You feel like everything's out to get you when you're 60. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like steps, pavements, cars, <laughs> bikes. Every, God, everything's really, trying yeah. to kill you. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that dread in Brendan's voice, grabbing those handrails. Graham Norton with Brendan last weekend. And while getting older, not for sissies, as Bette Davis put it so very well, how old is too old? When Joe Biden, America, announced this week officially that he was running again for POTUS at the age of 80, for callers to liveline any criticism of that ageism writ large. First of all, with regards to Joe Biden, I don't know enough about his mental or his medical situation to give any real comment. But if you're ever if, if latching onto the 80-year-of-age part, that's rubbish, it's insulting, and it's offensive to anybody anybody who's old, right? Yeah. So I, I can't make a judgment as to whether Joe Biden is capable. If he was 50 years of age, I'd have the same attitude. I don't know. People, some people say he is, but I'm not interested in getting involved with Joe Biden. But in terms of being 80 years of age, I'll be 80 years of age in June. I can tell you my intellect is as good as it ever was, if it, yeah, was, if yeah. it was ever any good. Anyhow, okay. I'm fit, thank God, I'm healthy, yeah. I'm lucky. He's not a geriatric, he's a wonderful person. And yeah. look at the visit, look what we all experienced by his trip to Ireland. Oh yeah. my God, he's very far from a geriatric and it's just awful. And it's I know, I know, know some I people. Think I don't attitudes know, some, have to change. Some people younger. Age is only yeah. a figure of speech. No, I think I think we have an awful lot to offer to society, and uh, I think many young person could learn from us. Excuse here, here. me for saying it, but here, um, here, here, here. no. I laugh at them. They say there's no show like a Joe show. <laughs> um, look, 
the man, in my opinion, as you get older, I'm 86. I'll be 87 on the 3rd of June. Uh, maybe his flexibility isn't as good as it was, but the man's intellect is still active and still, in my opinion, still worth looking after. From Liveline. But for some older listeners who spoke to John Cook on Drive Time, it was a bit more of a mixed bag. Oh, I think he's too old. Yeah, even though I'm older than that myself. <laughs> People I met in Oran Moor today weren't shy about their opinions on running for the world's highest office in your 80s. I mean, over 80, for goodness sake. But all of them were proud to speak about ageing themselves. Well, I'm 80, I don't know, but uh, everybody is different. But I, Joe Bin, I think, is the right man this time for it, you know. But uh, if Trump stood, would be better because... It'd be lovely to beat him again, you know. I don't think age comes into it. It's the person themselves. You, you could be 80 and you wouldn't look at it and you can do things and you could be under 80 and you'd be worse. Joe Biden is too old to be president. Do you mind people talking in that way? Is it ageist? Why shouldn't he I be able to do it? I don't think it's ageist because I think there's certain things in your life you're capable of and then I mean, your life doesn't stay the same all the time. I have a very, very strong opinion. I had to retire at 65. Did you want to? Of course I didn't. I'm 76 now and I'm going better than ever. (laughs) (laughs) So you know where I stand. Good for you. I'm old age. I'll be 80 next month. And I think Joe Barden is too old and I don't think he's that good. If they put Michael D up, that'd be a different Uh issue. Well, Michael D is a man in his 80s as well. He's good though. He's Uh a clever man. Michael D is a clever man. So does age matter then? Not if you have education and things like that. When you're in America, you're doing what you're told. Do you not think he's an intelligent man? He seemed to, to know what he was at when he was around Ireland he last looked, week. He looked lively well for his age. But uh-huh. how come they aren't able to get a 50-year-old? Oh, just some of the voices on drive time. Back in a bit. Welcome back. All week long, we heard stories of desperate people trying to flee Sudan a country that has become increasingly dangerous as rival army factions battle for power. But a US-brokered 72-hour truce allowed some international citizens to escape. On Morning Ireland, the story of May and her mother, who fled Khartoum by bus into Egypt. She spoke to Kate Farley. This is just unbelievable. This is just unbelievable. It's so terrifying, uh, so scary, uh... Uh, seeing people just leaving their houses and running, carrying backpacks just in order to catch a bus or anything, witnessing uh, traveling agencies who have buses trying to to change the prices of the tickets every day, just taking advantage of, of the chaos that's happening People are literally leaving and escaping everything in Sudan. They left their houses, they left their belongings, they left their other relatives just to save their lives. People are getting killed. I remember the most terrifying scene I ever saw in my whole life when I started my journey from Khartoum to Egypt. What I saw in the streets was... Uh, totally demolished buildings. I even saw a body. Uh, what we have been through, it's, it's uh, very terrible. And no matter how I try to describe what we went through, uh, nobody can actually imagine. 
With a population of over 46 million, Sudan is one of the largest countries in Africa. It is also one of the poorest in the world and now its people are caught between a conflict between two rival army units, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, RSF. So what has caused this escalation in violence? On Thursday, Claire put this to broadcaster John Simpson. Will you explain to us how this started and what is going on? Yeah, well, uh, it is quite complicated, like a lot of these things are. And yet it's, it's really pretty basic, Claire. I mean, it comes down to a clash of essentially of personalities uh, between two military people, General Al-Burhan, who represents, who's the leader of the, of the Sudanese army, and um, what's called the rapid support forces, uh, who are paramilitaries uh, run by uh, a, a character called General Hemedti. And um, it, it all comes down to a proposal that the RSF, the, the paramilitaries, should be uh, brought into the army and um, just just integrated with them. This has happened in loads and loads of countries, particularly in Africa. It's happened in Zimbabwe, for instance. And the uh, army uh, wanting to get control, essentially, of the RSF, says that this should happen within two years, and uh, the RSF says, no, it's got to happen in 10 years. This fairly trivial detail has been enough to create uh, a savage uh, little mini-civil war in which about 300 people so far have died in just a matter of days, and um, the whole country is brought to a halt for something fairly trivial, which is basically about power and about control, we've got this uh, this appalling situation there. But there were other elements at play here too. And then going back even further, this all has its roots back in 2019, not that long ago, but this is when Omar al-Bashir was overthrown and incidentally we found out yesterday that he had been released from prison before this all kicked off, which is a whole other thread to this story. But these groups, they were allies, weren't they, up until very recently? Yes, I mean, they they operated side by side, the RSF, um, actually has, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, quite a few people who have previously served in the army. What, what is so sad, Claire, is that after Omar al-Bashir was, uh, was overthrown, he was, after 30 years in power, pretty vicious dictator, uh, toppled in a, in a purely popular uprising, which the army only came to uh, quite slowly, um, it did look briefly as though there was going to be some kind of democratic solution. But, you know, the army couldn't bear to see, uh, I think, uh, uh, a democratic solution. And so they they took over and arrested the, the prime minister who was preparing to lead Sudan to some form of democracy. John Simpson with Claire.
On Morning Ireland, Audrey spoke to AKM Musha of Concern, who had just been evacuated. And for you, Musha, as an aid worker, your country director with Concern, you and your colleagues have been working for years to try and improve the lives of, of people um, around the world, but particularly and specifically in Sudan. And you look at a situation now in the country which is potentially catastrophic because there's no aid getting in. People are trapped. They've no food, electricity, water. Hospitals can't operate. Yes, people are running for their life and many people killed um, and suffering is increasing. In Sudan, before the, even this fight, 15.8 million people are suffering. They, were, they, uh, they, they needed humanitarian uh, support. On top of it, the, the need is increasing. Hospitals are not working. Any uh, banks are not working. People have money in the bank, but they cannot access the bank uh, because banks are not operating. They cannot really buy food. The food is short, short water, no electricity. It's a, it's a difficult life, uh, life here. The suffering are increasing. As an organization, not only Concern, other organizations have been working here for quite a long time to improve the situation. And everything has been uh, have been eroded. Um, what we we urge is to to stop the hostilities, stop the fighting, and to provide us the humanitarian access so that we can resume the operation. AKM Musha of Concern on Morning Ireland, and yesterday an announcement of a three-day extension of the truce agreement. But on Wednesday, when Claire spoke to Roland Oliphant, senior foreign correspondent with The Telegraph, he gave this pretty grim prediction of how things might go. It's interesting, the rhetoric from both sides is, look, you know, we're doing this for the good of the country. We believe in the democratic transition. Um, We we are the ones protecting uh, the, you know, the the transition to civilian rule. Um, But, you know, most independent observers don't really see that at all. It, it, It seems like both sides really um, think they can finish this militarily and they'd rather finish the fight um, than stop. And I think if you look at the numbers of ordinary Sudanese people who are fleeing the country, um, it tells you that that's where they think this is going. This fighting is going to continue and get worse. Farm today with Claire Byrne on Wednesday. With Ray Darcy, Artificial Intelligence. Because I'm from the Midlands, I sometimes have problems with my T's. For example, this, that those and these can sound like dis, dat, dos and dees. The Darcy put through some class at chat GPT gizmo, yes. Fierce technical around these parts. And sounding, as he acknowledged himself, remarkably like Pat Kenny. So is this the future? Will we all be BK? And if so, do we like it? Well, one man not so sure is Professor of Computer Science and Information Technology at UCC, Gregory Proven. So first off, let's understand this. And a more sophisticated Google search engine? It is not. It's significantly more than Google. Okay, so um, it enables you to have interactions where it goes beyond what data it's been built on. So, so Google, the Google search engine, it just returns to you information on the web. Okay, right. And, and now this is what's called generative AI. So it, you can give it a theme and it will expand on the theme. And because people don't really know how the technology works underneath the hood, you don't know how it's going to generate responses. So we'll give people examples there. So a few weeks ago, for example, uh, upstairs they asked ChatGPT to generate a poem about me. 
uh, I think in the style of WB Yeats or something. And within seconds then there was a, a seven or eight verse stanza poem uh, using some of the details about me that I run and, and eat porridge and stuff like that and I included all those details into it. And, and the, the thing, as you said, and the important word in there is that it's creating things. So it's creating things that haven't existed prior to your request. Yes, and okay. you know, that's the, the power, both positive and negative. And when it comes to creativity slash mind-blowing potential, Ray referenced a video, The AI Dilemma, from the Centre for Humane Technology. They showed how this AI, this AI technology can read neuroimages. So this is what happened. They showed a person a picture of a giraffe and they took a picture of what was going on in their brain, right? Then they fed the picture of what was going on in the brain into AI. And what did it deliver? A picture of a giraffe just there on. So that's, that's, that's sort of mind reading. It's certainly something. So how is it being done? Well, according to Proven, no one really knows. You, you said they don't know how it works. The open AI people who created say that they don't know how it works. I watched that talk with Tristan Harris and his mate um, and, and they're very qualified people. They run the Centre for Humane Technology. They don't know how it works. They were in a room of all the high-tech uh, people uh, out in Silicon Valley, none of those know how it works. How how did this come about that that we have this thing and nobody knows how it works? Well, the the technology is based on an advance from 2017, and it's called Transformers. And basically, it allows you to generate language that provides context. So previous to this, if you said um, I'm feeling blue today or my car is blue the AI wouldn't know how to interpret the word blue because uh-huh. it wouldn't have appropriate context. Yes. But now it uses a context and it can have these very subtle understanding of, of the, the language. And so as a consequence, it can approach human level conversation. It can generate, as you've seen and you talked about, it, it can generate poems. And so now it can engage with humans in a way that has never been seen before. And... You know, the the pros and the cons are, are enormous. Now, as you might have gathered, Professor Proven thinks there is massive potential for harm in relation to AI and chat GPT, particularly among social media and the oft-cited unintended consequences. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all in favour of blocking the advances here, but we, you know, we have to think about the social good and, you know, we have to enforce liability on these large language models like ChatGPT and the companies who provide them. Professor Gregory Proven of UCC with Ray. Now if that sounds like a mix of Day of the Triffids and well every scary sci-fi movie you have ever seen. Later on that same day quite a different perspective from Ireland's AI ambassador. Yes we do have one appointed only last year. Her name Dr Patricia Scanlon. She spoke to Cormac. Can I read you in the listeners this? I'm sure you're aware of what um, Eliezer Yudkowsky uh, has said. He's an American AI researcher. He wrote in, in Time magazine last month. He said, if we build AI smarter than humans, the likely result is the extinction of humanity. <laughs> yeah. That's the, there, there's a lot of that narrative going on. <laughs> there's a lot of that narrative going on. Do you know what? I'm, I'm hearing both, right? You're hearing... 
that idea of super intelligence, uh, we call it artificial general intelligence, AGI, you might hear that kind of acronym being knocked around a lot. People are, you know, that obviously is something that the that's the blockbuster movie, right? That that's the stuff we're talking about. Is it's it possible. possible? We're not actually talking about that. Anything's possible. I would never say something is impossible. Really, I don't know. And to be well, honest, can, can you explain knows. to me? Or I I know we're going to sci-fi for a second. How would that be possible? The idea behind AGI is that uh, it will start to learn itself and strategize and think and learn new things. There's no evidence that any of that's possible. And to be honest, with the technology we have today you know, most people are, would say that it's not possible now. What that pause was looking for, and I actually think they're, you know, they're right in some ways. I can see the positives and negatives of that. They're saying this, look, you know, we don't know when this is possible. Should, should we all take a pause, figure out does the regulation, is it the right framework to address this? Because if you think about it in the EU, we already have the AI Act. It's been years of negotiation. The US don't have this. So they're kind of, you know, in some ways people are saying, okay, regulation is needed, a framework to make sure that we're, you know, any AI stays aligned with human values. But she would acknowledge that there might be more immediate risks from what she terms bad actors. This is a powerful technology. The risks in front of us right now are something more about bad actors, misinformation, you know, that kind of thing. There's there's a lot of risks that are right in front of us. And sometimes we can get really distracted with that super intelligence, uh, singularity, you know, we're all going to be dead in the morning, that kind of thing. Where actually there's really big stuff to talk about right now. And that's what we're trying to address with, you know, what happens if high risk use cases that AI has been used um, in recruitment or it's been used in, um, you know, sentencing um, laws or if it's been used in education to side or if it's been used in employment, someone doesn't get a job because the computer said no. You know, they're the things that there are actual real risks of bias in these systems. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I mean, if people know this. There's risks about data um, governance, you know, d- the data privacy issues. What is happening to the data? What is it being governed? It, can you explain why the AI said no or yes or awarded somebody that loan or promoted <laughs> that person? Yeah. And if you can't do that, that, that's the real risk right now. We all, the public, everybody needs to be aware of what the benefits are. And there's loads of them in terms of healthcare, education. We can do so much But, but also the, the risks as well. And let's keep okay. an eye on the risks and okay. make sure they're being regulated for you. Well, Computer says no, both chilling and irritating. That was our AI ambassador, Dr. Patricia Scanlon, on Drive Time. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Thursday was Poetry Day Ireland and culturally speaking, we were sideswiped by this. There once was a TD called Niall who came into the Dáil for a while. He declined to take questions amid some suggestions that on him his rivals would pile. Public liability claims have really been making a hames of clubs, shops and sport. This expensive wee tort law's the only one everyone blames. The servants who service the state are under some pressure of late. Eamon Ryan's called for more, but is everyone sure? Hear more on tonight's Late Debate. Column O'Mungon, who knew? We dare you to start every late debate like that. But then the panel, what was their favourite political poem and why? Uh, Mary Siri Kearney, what's what's your favourite? Uh, well, as a, as a, a studying for my junior search, uh, I was obsessed with Yeats, so obviously the, the biggest political poem would be Easter 1916. But my first in my first encounter with a politician reciting poetry uh, was the the late uh, great uh, Jim Mitchell, and at an event his party piece was "If" by Rudyard Kipling. 
and 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 it very much sums up, I think, uh, perhaps how how politics can go. And I suppose looking at, uh, you know, if you can dream and not make dream your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same as many as well as many other things that we end up on. But that is, it sums up perhaps that there there are highs, there are lows, and that uh, and that we we continue on. If you're going to make a statement when people want you to answer questions, uh, <laughs> Gary Gannon, what's your what's your favourite one? My favourite poem is "Ceasefire" by Michael Landley. I think it's my favourite poem at any time of year, but it's actually particularly relevant to this 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I think it was released in the newspapers about a couple of weeks later, and it places the context of the communities in the north who had to sit alongside tables each other and place in the context of the Trojan War where um, Priam who was the father of Achilles father of Hector had to sit with the Achilles who had previously murdered his son in battle and do what must be done kiss the hand of Achilles the killer of his son Always really interesting to hear politicians not talking politics but normal poetry service resumes on Arena. On Monday, actor Denise Goff joined Sean to talk about Dead Poets Live at the Gate Theatre in Dublin this Sunday. This is Mushrooms by Sylvia Plath. Overnight, very whitely, discreetly, very quietly, our toes, our noses take hold on the loam, acquire the air. Nobody sees us, stops us betrays us, the small grains make room. Soft fists insist on heaving the needles, the leafy bedding, even the paving. Our hammers, our rams, earless and eyeless, perfectly voiceless, widen the crannies, shoulder through holes. We diet on water, on crumbs of shadow, bland-mannered, Asking little or nothing. So many of us. So many of us. We are shelves. We are tables. We are meek. We are edible. Nudgers and shovers in spite of ourselves. Our kind multiplies. We shall by morning inherit the earth. Our foot's in the door. Oh yes, Mushrooms by Sylvia Plath. Read by Denise Goff. And with Claire author Shane Hegarty on the power of words to capture those tricky emotions and feelings we just can't quite articulate. Take this one. Pronoia. It's the opposite of paranoia. Yeah. So if you're pronoic, you have a feeling that the world is out there working in your favour, that people are out there trying to make it better. Pronoia. Wouldn't trust it. And there was more in this positive vein. Like there's a Sanskrit word, mudita, mm-hmm. which is, I like this one because it's sort of the opposite of what Irish people are supposed to be doing um, in their kind of begrudging state or natural begrudging state that we're all supposed to be in. But mudita is to capture an experience of joy felt in hearing of someone else's good fortune. Okay. So if I take joy from somebody else's very good news. Yes. I'm experiencing. A sense of mudita. M- mudita. Mudita. Never going to happen. So we turn to the Germans for something just a little more in tune with the Irish psyche. Torschluss panic. It literally means the, it, the sense of a door closing, door closing panic. Mm-hmm. And for those of us, me, who are heading towards 50, this is one of those words that unfortunately kind of feels slightly too real. So, so it's a phrase that refers to the feeling that one's window of opportunity is closing as one gets older. Ooh, 
a feeling we thought we needed a word for, but maybe not. A bit too close to the bone. Shane Hegarty with Claire. And staying with something of a theme this week, finding love in later life. Dragon's Den businesswoman Nora Casey went dating with Sarah and Cormac. What do you want? What are you looking for, uh, Nora? Me? I used to think a DIY guy because, you know, Richard wasn't too good around the house and I've often got broken shelves and stuff that need fixing and this no. time of year a gardener. No, don't go but for then a DIY I think guy. No. An accountant because the tax returns are pretty hellish. Ah, Nora, um, for God's sake. I, I like, I'm getting to the punchline, Cormac. <laughs> Don't be drunk to Travelling. So <laughs> I travel a lot on my own. So I thought, no, that'd be grand. Somebody come with me. Then when I was sick recently, I thought a doctor would save a lot of bills and would help me a lot. But really, I'm the world's most hopeless cook. So I really think I would love somebody who could cook. I have a male friend who says women always talk such rubbish about wanting somebody who makes them laugh and all they're doing is checking out your height and your physique and your (laughs) facial expressions. But I do like, I always say to people, if a man makes you laugh on the first date, he's worth a second date, definitely. Yeah, I agree. Sarah, I I love the the way Nora is approaching this like a business. Uh, What are the the services that she needs in her life, uh, Phil? Hire that person. Yeah, exactly. Mm. (laughs) But you you know, chemistry is not something that you can manufacture. So I know when you're younger, like you'd be 21 and meet somebody in a pub and it's a lot of chemistry, alcohol fuel sometimes, and you're looking for something totally different. And by the way, when you tell each other, you know, about your life, it takes 10 minutes. I'm so old, it takes like four months for me to fill in the details. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, now all of us who have dated know that there's a bit of pitching involved. You're selling yourself in a manner of speaking. Or in this man's case, no, you're just selling. I think the first guy set the tone for me. He he was fussing. We were in a local coffee shop and he kept saying, can I have a good place where the Wi-Fi is better? And, you know, she was saying, the waitress was saying, oh, yes, why don't you sit over there? So we had to move to this other spot. And I'm saying, why does that matter? Why do you need the Wi-Fi? He said, oh, listen, I brought a little deck along and my laptop because I have a great business idea that you might want to invest in. <laughs> I was like, you, know, you I don't are think he, joking me. I'm not. But I'm that out. happens a lot. <laughs> but that happens a lot to me, as in, you know, they'll pretend they want to have a date, but they really want to sit there and tell you about their great business idea. But the no. second one... Uh, did you say to Laura, by the way, I will give you €10,000 for 5% of the business. <laughs> no, I said, I'd rather flush €10,000 down the toilet than spend yeah. another second talking yeah. about your business. But what to do on that first date? Oh, a nice walk. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? <sighs> Bad idea. The second one, I, I think, you know, looked vaguely normal. Not an axe murderer, which I always worry about, or a vibe in that direction. But I made the disaster, disastrous decision to go for a walk. So if you go for a walk, what you realise is the further you're getting away from the car park that at some point you're going to have to turn around and do the whole walk back. And he starts off talking about his ex-wife. Oh, non-stop. <gasps> if a man says he doesn't want drama, I guarantee you, sorry, Cormac, and all of the men listening, but I guarantee you they'll bring the drama to the table. And okay. and he had talked endlessly about his anger and, you know, clearly he wasn't over his uh, breakup. Mm-hmm. But then he started telling me about his conquests and exploits and the, the women he managed to go out with. And he's in his phone. Look, this is us on holiday this together. <laughs> And I realised, we've walked 30 minutes and I realised, oh my goodness, I have to walk 30 minutes back with him talking. Like I didn't get a word in. Not exactly selling it. But she does offer this wisdom from the dating trenches. I think what I've learned so far is the first time I was ghosted, 
it was devastating. I thought there was something wrong with my phone. I've never had that experience before. I live in a world where I can't stay on top of the people that I need to call back. And there's all people in my life that I want to spend time with. And then there's this guy who appeared absolutely normal. We had a lovely date and then just didn't talk to me for weeks oh, afterwards. I'm so sorry. Now he plagues me most weekends. So oh, I just of course he does. Oh, of course he does. Yeah, yeah goes to back. Then exactly. I, I found that after COVID, a lot of men wanted to fall in love very quickly. Firstly, you had a lot of breakups during COVID. So unless you want to have a career as a counsellor, you you know, if somebody starts talking about their, their marriage breakup or their relationship breakup, ad nauseum when you're just sitting down for the first date, really just leave them off. They're not ready to move on, even though they think they might be. But also I discovered this fall in love thing is huge. Like I, I've wasted, you know, I've no time left. I need to fall in love. So within a few days, they're in love with you and they're mad about you, but they bolt just as quickly. Wonderful. It's like they wake up one morning and say, oh, did I say... <laughs> I love her. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, that, I in fairness, to, in fairness to the men, I'd say they'd be nervous meeting you, Nora. So give, give them a chance. I know you will. Uh, I, I can't now, wait to hear around don't. Too. Now I don't have to do anything else because on drive time I've just told the whole country I'm dating. Yeah. So there'll if be you want to win a, a date with Nora Casey, five one double five one. Nora, look. Oh man, on the national airwaves. Well, you never know. That is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. And we will finish with this just out from Jesse Ware. Thank you.